Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. friends. I hope you had a great week. And I also hope I had a great week, to be honest, because I am on holidays at the moment. So this week's episode is a little different to the usual format. I'm not around to catch up on the news with Aoife and we can't do the usual culture and entertainment catch up either. So next week, we'll do a bumper catch up on both of those matters. Instead, today, later on in the episode, myself and Cassie Delaney get into the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial. We'll talk about the way it's been consumed. Uh, spoken about and memified and what that means for other people who experience domestic violence. First, though, I took advantage of having a little extra time to have a big chat with Emily Pine. Emily's book, Notes to Self, was published in 2018 and became a number one bestseller. It dealt with personal issues like addiction, infertility and sexual violence and resonated with thousands of people as a result. Now she's released her first novel, Ruth and Penn, which is set over 24 hours in Dublin. A little bit of a content warning here because we do touch on matters of fertility and pregnancy loss. I'm so delighted to be with Emily Pine. We are in the offices of Penguin, the publisher, not the animal, and we are sitting in a gorgeous room with lovely high ceilings, but we have opened the window because it's roasting. Um, So if you hear a little bit of background noise, there's lots of building going on around here. Um, Hopefully it won't distract you too much because we've got lots to talk about. Um, Emily, we're here to talk about your novel, Ruth and Pen, your first foray into fiction. But of course, lots of people will be familiar with your writing from your first book, which was a collection. Well, I was just asking you there, do you term it a collection of essays or a memoir? How would you describe it yourself? I kind of switch between the two because if you say essays, sometimes people glaze over and they're thinking of school and I totally understand why. A memoir kind of explains what I was trying to do in that book. Mm-hmm. But the the reason that it is essays is because each one of the six, each one of the six takes a different part of my life and kind of dives into it mm-hmm. and, and explores that space instead of trying to tell my life from start to finish. Yeah. Partly because I don't think of myself as a person who goes from, you know, I was born on this date and, mm. you know, I've progressed until now. It, I, I feel like I'm constantly going backwards and forwards in yeah. my life. I felt, it's funny, when I was writing my book, I felt the same. I, I just felt like I couldn't do beginning, middle, end because it just didn't feel like a true reflection. Subjects felt more kind of 
accurate to me or more like me. And um, so I totally understand that. Uh, you wrote, I mean, your book was such a success. I like, I can only imagine what it felt like to have so many people reading your very personal stories because you did write about some very serious topics within that book. I'm interested to hear how people responded to it. They were extraordinary. I mean, they were extraordinarily kind to start off with. I guess one of my fears about publishing it was that people would, I don't know, respond badly or think that I was a bad person because I had done things or I had had things done to me or whatever. And I didn't encounter that at all. So all of that stigma, it turned out, was in my head. And instead, people were incredibly kind. They were really compassionate. And then they started talking about their own experiences with me. And these are, you know, friends and family, but more so total strangers who I'd never met they would email me or write to me or just I'd meet them at events or in you know costs and uh, you know just talk about the things in the book that had chimed with them and it took me a while to work it out and then I realized oh they don't really they're not really talking about the book they're totally talking about themselves and I'm here to listen and it was I mean it was a privilege it was also kind of liberating you know because so much of the book had been about me facing up to things in the past I mean and I'm not trying to be cagey like you know uh, I mean things from you know my dad having been an alcoholic all my life to me as a teenager being I mean you know what was described as a wild child but not going to school taking drugs and drinking and encountering kind of sexual violence and and being the victim of that and so on and so kind of facing up to and and possessing own trying to own my own story and so then to be greeted with this reception and to hear other people's stories mm. just the solidarity of that was extraordinary and it felt really liberating like okay I no longer have to carry all of this mm. you can just set it free so again the things that I had worried about in advance were completely the opposite of what happened and I, I'm so grateful to everybody. That's so interesting because I think sometimes when people write about their personal challenges or things that are tricky for them, um, you know, it, it does open the door for other people to share their experiences with them. I've certainly experienced that myself, myself. And I think sometimes there's an assumption that that's a real weight or a burden that someone has to carry. But what you seem to be saying is that, you know, that there's obviously solidarity in that because not only are people bringing you their stories, but you're also getting that Me Too experience of, oh, I'm not the only one. Well, I mean, exactly as you say, Louise, we do. We're in our own heads and we're just sitting there going, it must just be me. I must be the only weirdo on the face of this planet who feels like this, who experiences, who thinks like this. And and then someone says, oh, you know, me too. Whatever the experience is. And you suddenly realise, oh, okay, I'm not alone in this. Mm. And yeah, I do find that very, I mean, just confidence boosting it's Mm. sort of like the first time I heard the word words imposter syndrome I was Mm. like oh they named a syndrome (laughs) that's a thing yeah (laughs) so I mean I think imposter syndrome is a funny double-edged sword as well because it's so it gets attached to women all the time and I'm like oh right are we meant to imagine ourselves as imposters now but I just think to to know that like you're not the only person who feels like they never you know that they that they're making it up and faking it and don't know what they're doing it everybody else is in the same boat it lifts the the pressure somehow is that something that you experience much imposter syndrome yeah well like I said I I think it's a tiny bit of a double-edged sword because now I I wouldn't describe myself in Mm. that way because because it's so widespread that if everyone is going through it then you know like let's own that yeah. and let's just say well this is just normal it's not a syndrome at yes. all <laughs> um, and I do think it gets attached to women just like the having it all you know yeah. phrase and it becomes a stick to beat us with mm. uh, so but I do 
at the same time, I think it's really important to be open and as because I'm a teacher as well, yeah. right? To be open with my students and so on and say, you know, if you feel like you don't know what's going on or you feel slightly lost, most of us do yeah. most of the time. Yeah. It's so funny. I hadn't experienced imposter syndrome in a long time. Um, and in fact, sometimes I worried that I was too confident in my ability. <laughs> And then I recently started writing some opinion columns for the Irish Independent, and I have never in my life experienced what I'm experiencing writing those columns. I love your columns. Oh, thank you. But the, the, I am struggling so much, like so much that I've been like, maybe I'll just pack it in. But but if I was packing it in, it would be only down to this intense kind of fear and self-doubt that I'm experiencing as I write them. And I've been trying to figure out where is that coming from? Like, I, you know, I've been writing mm. for years. I've written loads. It's not an issue. But I realized I've always written for women and I've always written for women's publications or in, air quotes, women's supplements within those uh, those publications. And this is the first time that I, I feel like I can feel men's eyes on me or something when I'm writing them. And for some reason, that's really getting to me and making me feel inadequate. And I think that's so interesting that I can be you know, you can be a woman who feels very confident about their abilities and very good about what they do, but then when a kind of man enters the room, you suddenly feel scared. I think it's such a strange thing. I'm trying to kind of process it at the moment. It's so intense. There's so, so many layers. I, so what I really want here is is some of the men who are definitely reading your column to respond, right? <laughs> because what I have found is that they're <laughs> they're not all that bad. No, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> Let's edit that out. Um, what I have found is that when men have got in touch with me, they mm. about reading notes to self and now Ruth and Penn, they've talked in incredibly what I think of as very emotional ways. They've talked about their feelings. They've, and these assumptions that I have made about how men read or the fact that men won't read, yeah. you know, uh, a memoir by a woman or a novel about two women's lives mm. are wrong. And and I think there's there's that's that's a kind of prison. In, yeah. a, in a way and so I just it's funny I want to say to you I'm sure that they are reading your columns and thinking oh this is great someone's talking to me yeah well I mean I suppose as well what I'm doing is I'm I'm painting all men with the same brush and I'm kind of assuming and and I'm also what I'm what it is is kind of a sexism that I'm that I'm subscribing to because there's an assumption I think and we see it all the time and actually be interested to hear your your thoughts on this we see it all the time in books that there's an assumption that men are more cerebral somehow or that they're more intellectual or they read in a different way to women and that therefore and I think that that's what's happening in my brain is that, oh, men don't want to hear little old me. I, st I, I start to feel like this little kind of bimbo, um, which in itself is a sexist term. But you know what I mean? Like I start to feel intense doubt and like I'm not good enough and I'm just a stupid little girl. And it's like every person who ever told me I was a stupid little girl and there are plenty of them are in my head again. And it's I just yeah. I'm finding it so strange. But of course, as you're saying, you know, you got to give men a bit more credit, I suppose. Yeah, but I mean... You're so right, because we, how could we not have internalized the patriarchy that we grew up mm. with? Like, ha, ha, the, the, all we can do really is notice it mm. and make it visible and then try and think outside it. Mm. But sometimes it's really hard to give yourself that pep mm -hmm. talk, yeah. you know? And so you're not, you're not really imagining men, you're just imagining this horrible <laughs> patriarchy coming down on you yeah. and those judgments. And like, how many times have I censored myself or not said the thing because I think I will be judged yeah. harshly for it? And it's exactly that, the way that 
you know, and I mean, I think we think things have changed a lot and we're now a much more open society and we hear st- women's stories a lot more. We're a lot more we open do, to yeah. it. Um, but it doesn't mean you don't still have that voice in your head yeah. saying maybe you shouldn't say that. Maybe you sh- maybe you should try and clean that story up a little yeah. bit, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about Ruth and Penn, um, which I absolutely loved. And for Thank people you. who haven't, you know, aren't familiar with it, it's the story of two women uh, walking around Dublin City, essentially. Um, and I loved that aspect of it. I really loved your description of the routes that they take and the kind of places and the streets that you mention. And um, I presume that was a very conscious choice to kind of bring people with you. Yeah, and I'm a total pedestrian. And there's one other person pointed out, they take a lot of buses. And I love taking, I love, I'm a big fan of public transport. But that, yeah, that sense of moving around the city and the city as, you know, as a character and mm. as... Um, shaping, you know, how we behave and what we think about and mm. how we can move through our lives. And for me, I mean, the two women, I mean, Ruth is uh, is in her early 40s and Penn is a teenager. So they're at completely different stages of their lives. But the city is there for both of them, but yeah. it's there in different ways. Like they're using, you know, yeah. Ruth works there and Penn is kind of coming in for a protest uh, march and stuff. And so they have different different accesses to the city. Yeah, I loved, I particularly, obviously because of my age, I think I identified with Ruth and the fact that, you know, various places, her kind of acknowledgement of, oh, that used to be this or that used to be that. And I remember I did this there. That's kind of how I experience the city now. You know, I'm turning 40 this year and, um, you know, I find I'm not in town as much. And when I am in, I'm like, oh God, what? That's not there anymore? <laughs> or like, you know, what about that glorious moment I had outside that kebab shop that actually, oh wait, that burned down. Like all of those processes. And Ruth does that, but also there are places that work because the novel is set in 2019 and there are places that didn't survive the pandemic yeah. that are named or meant or described in the novel. And I'm like, oh, that's already gone, yeah. you know? And it, so it feels, yeah, it feels like that moment just before the pandemic when, and in fact, actually, if anybody can hear building noise going on, that building is is being, is described in the yeah. novel too, like the <laughs> fact that it's being built. So it's still being built three years later. Yeah, but that's so great. I mean, for people, obviously there will be people who aren't from Dublin or who aren't Irish, who, who you know, that stuff might go over their head. But as a Dubliner, you know, I love it. And even the way that you describe the various characters, like, you know, Penn's mom has a different perspective on the city to Penn. Um, versus Ruth you know it's all really interesting it, it kind of I think it brings about there brings up the kind of vibrance of Dublin and it's varying personalities depending on who you are and how you're looking at it um, I'm interested to hear about the decision to write this book um, I know you started writing it when you were writer in residence at the National Maternity Hospital in Hollis Street um, tell me a little bit about how you came to that role and then how you decided to start this book so one of the stories that I tell in Notes to Self is about, effectively about my, the fact that I couldn't have children and that journey, including kind of fertility treatment and miscarriage and the emotional challenge of that too, and coming to accept that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also, I mean, I suppose what Ruth and Penn really is, is, is the next chapter of that, which is, okay, well, I, I need to do something else with my life. So I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And Part of that, getting there, was the National Maternity Hospital, which was the space, not only that I had had so much loss in, um, and obviously when I say I, it's also my partner, but I can't mm. speak for him. Um, so I'm just going to talk from my own perspective, but also um, that my sister's daughter had been born in and died. 
And so that building was full of really terrible memories yeah. and grief. Um, it was also the building that my nephew was very happily born in and is, he's happy and healthy. So that there are happy memories too. But it was important. I don't know about you, but I just... If I had never gone back, if I, the building itself had become this place that I couldn't walk past without, you know, feeling kind of terrible inside. Mm. And I wanted to address that. And so I met Shane Higgins, he's the master of the hospital, and he's really interesting um, mm. and very interested in literature and the arts and so on. And he said, you know, well, how would you feel about being writer in residence? And, and it was an extraordinary opportunity. So I couldn't say no as challenging as it was right yeah. it's very hard you know literally walking to work yeah. in the morning past women who are in labor and kind of marveling at what they're going through in their own world and also going wow I'll never have that mm. and so it was hard and it but also really I don't know rich at the same time when when you press on something that hurts maybe maybe it, it, it's a creative moment too I, that was my hope anyway and so Ruth is so, like, she's in the hospital on that day, you know, when, um, that the novel is set on. And so, so much of those conflicting emotions are there, I think, in her character and in the novel. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you really feel that. I'm thinking of when she is approaching the hospital and she sees a group of people outside and at first she's like oh what are they doing and then she realizes that they're praying and she refers to the fact that thank god they don't have the the little white coffins because i wouldn't be able for that today and of course that's a real thing that ha is happening there and, and those are people that i met when i was at the hospital as a, as a writer and i was coming in and they were and i and i talked to them for a while you know because everybody has a perspective and i was interested in them as people as well even yeah. though i would have a very very different perspective Sure. And I think that what they were doing is incredibly cruel, mm. um, not only to the people who are going into that building for all sorts of reasons. You know, I mean, there's a real, there's a real, um, we're talking about the National Maternity Hospital a lot at the moment, yeah. but there's a real uh, argument to be said for renaming it a, a hospital of reproductive health, because yeah. it is not just about maternity. Mm. And, uh, and so... Thinking about uh, people coming out of that building, as I was, and they, the the protesters were also tying like white roses to the railings. I mean, so hard for the staff as well yeah. to walk past that. So I just, I found that it was an incredibly cruel moment. And so again, that was something that I thought, like Ruth, when she encountered, when she sees them in the in the novel, she just she rushes past them. She can't yeah. cope with the emotions that that provokes. And when you spoke to them, I, I mean, what was that like? Well, it was strange. I mean, they were there for different reasons and, and so on. And, and you know, I, I explained that I was a writer and so on. Um, but they, you know, they had, they had their own... I mean, I don't agree with it, as I've said, mm. but they said, you know, these, these women should be supported to have their children instead of a termination and, you know, we'll care for the children. And I was just looking at them going, well... You do, like the children who are living in poverty and homelessness right yeah, now yeah, are not being care cared for. Them, for. Yeah. So you know, I just I don't I saw a huge gap between the kind of professed ideology and the what was actually the actual reality that we live in. Yeah. So uh, as I said, I don't I don't agree, but I I was I, I was interested and I wanted to include it. Yeah, I thought um, again, and I mean it's no surprise because you wrote so. Uh, kind of eloquently about your experience of infertility in the in notes to self and I thought you wrote about it really beautifully in this as well um, and there was one one phrase that particularly struck me um where Ruth it's in Ruth's section of the book obviously and it's some wombs are lucky and others just aren't um and 
I think it struck me because, well, for, I mean, I think it would strike anyone, but, you know, I, after I had cancer, I had fertility mm-hmm. treatment and I was told by a doctor that I would not conceive naturally. Um, so I had that experience of, of getting that news and so I experienced that feeling uh, for a little while, but then I was what I have always classified as incredibly lucky and I got pregnant, no problem. And I'm wondering when you encounter people like me who just by the luck of the draw for whatever reason, you know, were able to get pregnant when for whatever reason you weren't like, how does that feel? Does it get any easier? So I have a range of different like responses and some of them are historical, you know, and because I am years later and I am, and I think this is really important to say because I needed to hear this when I was going through it, which is I'm really happy. I'm childless. And sometimes that's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I'm, and I'm totally down with that, but you know, I would never want anyone who wanted a child to go through the, the emotional pain that yeah. myself and my partner went through and yeah. still go through. So there are days where it's brilliant and there are days where, it, you know, it just feels like a grief that I'm carrying. And But, but isn't everyone carrying grief? This is the thing. Like, yeah. Louise, it's not like you haven't been through something. Yeah. This, is, this is the point about listening to other people's stories and not only being focused, you know, on the self as you suddenly realize everyone has something in their lives and nobody deserves more pain and the weird thing is that when I was going through it myself I kept thinking this is because you know I was the student who studied for her exams in school even though it's terrible I never went to school but I still managed to study for my exams I'm I'm a paradox but (laughs) so I thought somehow I could study for this as like an exam yeah or you know it was like a job interview Mm. and if I just tried harder Mm. I would get the job at the end. And couldn't they see how hard I was trying? And it took me a really long time to accept that it's got nothing to do with you or how hard you're trying. And it has to do with luck. And so it feels, I'm not sure if I can say this, it feels shitty to you feel can. that mm. unlucky. Mm. And, and a really good friend of mine said to me, she said, I think you just have to stay in that. You're in that. So you just have to be in that feeling right now. And she goes, but you won't always feel like that. Yeah. And, and I don't. Good. And, and I think I have luck in other parts of my life. Yeah. And I'd, I'd, I'd like now t- the story that I tell myself to be about, okay, notice that luck. Emily. Yeah. Notice that happiness. Yeah. That's very evolved though. And very hard. Years. <laughs> I won't say, you know, and there, there are times, you know, I just think, really, why did, why did that happen for her and not for me? So, yeah, my best self is, is like, evolved, yeah. <laughs> that's a good word. And then, you know, we also carry our worst selves with us too, right? This is it. We have good days and we have bad days. Yeah. Um, staying with Ruth for a moment, um, I, I read an interview you gave to the Irish Times recently, uh, which I really enjoyed by Catherine Cleary. And um, within the book, within that, that piece, Ruth was described in quotes as a difficult woman. Um, and I don't know where that quote came from, if that was something that you said or something that came up somewhere else. But I had just been thinking about this concept of the difficult woman because I watched um, The Worst Person in the World this week. Yes, Have you seen that? I really like that. Oh, my God. I loved it. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's this amazing Norwegian film about a woman um, kind of, you know, going through her adult life. And she is, I think, what would be described as perhaps a difficult woman. And I I got thinking about that and I was like, are men described as difficult in the same way that women are? Um, 
And I'm not sure if they are. Like, it seems to me that sometimes women who are in any way complex or who have this kind of yearning maybe for more um, are automatically categorized as like, oh, she just won't accept happiness or she doesn't know what's good for her or she's difficult and, you know, will she ever get over herself? And I'm not sure that men who have that kind of yearning for more are, are categorized in the same way. What do you think? I think certain labels attach are, and are to certain people and then are very gendered. And mm. I mean, look at the word bossy, yeah. right? And how, and I, the number of times I describe myself, I was in a meeting the other day and it desperately needed chairing. And so I just stepped in mm. and because we all, you know, needed to leave in an hour and get through <laughs> an agenda. And I found myself describing myself as bossy and apologizing. I'm so sorry I'm being so bossy. And <sighs> so upset. Exactly. I'm setting myself up as a difficult woman in that scenario. But actually, it was a strategic move to yeah. get us through the agenda. So I could see what I was doing at the same time. I was, and, and both annoyed with myself for apologizing and calling myself bossy and at the same time going well you need to do this yeah like, we all need to do this so it's a it's, it's a funny it's a strange position to be in um where you we recognize certain kind of gen- very gendered behaviors characteristics and labels and for me ruth is a challenging person but as she says herself in the novel who wants unchallenging mm. and i just really i think that I think, you know, she says, I would rather be interesting. <laughs> I would rather be interesting too, you know? Yeah. And she starts off the knot. And again, this is something that had, I had been carrying around in my head. She says, oh, you know, um, her mother had always said to her, and I want to say this is not my mother speaking, but it was um, her mother is kind of based on, a, uh, on another person. Um, and her mother had said to her, oh, uh, somebody likes themselves, don't they? Mm. Right? And that was the ultimate put down um, that Ruth's mother had said to her. And she says in, in you know, her opening chapter, she says, well, I may as well like myself, you know, mm-hmm. as a kind of radical act. And I think that's, that's the other side to what you're talking about, Louise, that... We, you know, the the quest to like ourselves and to assert that and put that in the world, and there's nothing more challenging than a woman who likes herself. Mm. Isn't it so funny though? And it's bred into us from such a young age. Like I, when you were yeah. talking about, you know, deciding to kind of step up and put a bit of shape on that meeting, I can so relate to that. I can't. I, I would. I would. I can't tolerate when we are wasting time by not actually getting down to business in any situation. It drives me bananas. Um, and I also can relate to that feeling of like, oh, I better temper this by apologizing for myself. And and that comes from being you know for me it goes right back to school being the the kid with their hand up in class and or being someone who had the answer to the question or who had something to say and being told time and time again you know usually by boys in my class shut up nobody wants to hear what you have to say like you know I mean literally not just that I got that message being literally told those things and they do stay with you that you have to kind of temper yourself for the crowd or I better not say too much or I better not dominate and obviously you know there are rules of being a social being but like, you know, at the same time, I frequently find myself in conversations with men who don't have those <laughs> skills or don't have the motivation to do that. And women sometimes, too. Yeah, I think it's funny. I mean, again, I was at an event being run by this guy. And uh, some one of the fact. I mean, I won't go into too many details because it's not that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things in the event didn't work out. And he just said, OK, well, we won't do that anymore. And he just kind of announced it publicly. He said, we're not doing that anymore and moved on. And myself and my female colleague were sitting there going, oh, my goodness, if that had been me, I would have been so apologetic and I would have been kind of bright. Bre- and I was like, I need to I need to be more like that. Yeah. Right. Don't apologize. And so, yeah, I think I think it's all it's all a learning situation. But I also love working collaboratively in teams 
teams where everybody is incredibly respectful of other people's boundaries and says sorry is that all right with you and that seems like a really good way to be so yeah let's not throw everything out the window um but I do I do totally agree with what you're saying about that sense of what I never want to do is be putting myself down yeah yeah I agree or apologizing for your existence yeah which is something that I, I for taking fall up into. space. Yeah, you know, yeah. Let's do, all do our superhero poses. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk a little bit about Pen, who of course is the other character in the book. Um, and Pen is, can I just say as well? I I both read this the physical copy and I also listened to the audiobook. Oh wow! And it is so well read. Um, Jodie O'Neill. Jodie O'Neill. She's yeah, amazing. I, I looked it up because I was like, who is who is reading this book? Because they're doing it so well. Because obviously, it's you know the two characters have such different tones, and then other other characters come into it as well. You know, aside from Ruth and Penn. But but I loved being in Penn's mind. Um, but Penn is on the autistic spectrum, um, and I wondered how you approached writing her, um, and if you felt a bit worried about writing her um, in the context of her autism? So it was something that I wanted to do for a few different reasons and, um, and one of them is related to my friends with children. Um, so friends with children who were being diagnosed with autism right. and talking and having these like long conversations and watching the children grow up and watching the particular challenges and barriers that they had to overcome uh, and also watching them be incredible human beings Mm. and the joy that they, you know, kind of bring just as every child brings, right? Um, I also was watching some of my friends get diagnosed in their late 30s and 40s Mm. because their children were being diagnosed and these really late diagnoses coming through and them realizing, oh, okay, I'm ADHD. Yeah. You know, that that makes sense now of how I operate in the world. And just realizing that, that neurodiversity, like many kind of ways in which identity has been, which used to be very rigid, you were a man or you were a woman, and that was set, and you were, you know, you were this kind of personality, you were an introvert or you were an extrovert, Mm. and there was, you know, or you were strange and you were over there. Like, Mm. and when I was a kid, so I have dyspraxia, and when I was a kid, it was called clumsy child syndrome. Really? Yeah, (gasps) great, which is actually, I mean, in a weird way, it, it, it does what it says on the tin, you know, it's yeah. a good descriptor. I was always bumping into things and I yeah. still do a lot. Yeah, but clumsy child syndrome sounds like... It's not a nice label no. to carry through life. And so I guess it just, it was, and, and, and I never knew that it had been renamed because, you know, you just kind of get on with things yeah. until I was in my 20s and I was starting to teach. And I had a student with a dyspraxic diagnosis who came to me and said, you know, I need um, kind of extra time with assignments or whatever. And I was like, oh, and I was looking at the list going... And it said at the bottom, it used to be known as clumsy child syndrome. And I was like, oh, that's, that's me. me. And dyspraxia is not as a lot nicer as a label. Yeah. Um, and, and I think of it, and, and I heard, because I heard someone else describe it, and I thought it was a good, good illustration as a kind of spatial, physical form of dyslexia. So yeah. it's not reading and writing, but it's reading the world yeah. right around you. And so pen in the novel also is dyspraxic and so that was a way for me of extending that and thinking about okay well how does neurodiversity shape the world and how pen is going out into the world and so it's both seeing the world through her eyes and through her experiences but also seeing how she makes a difference in the world because of all of the abilities she has yeah did you find writing her challenging or 
Yeah. Yeah. In, in the I suppose sense, that's the question. Did yeah, you find it challenging? A, in the sense that I, I guess, as with with anything, I mean, from Ruth's perspective. I felt that I had a personal experience yeah. of infertility. But however, she does IVF. So I had yeah. to do a ton of research on that as yeah. well to make sure I got that right because I didn't do it my, do IVF myself. Yeah. And so you always feel there's a kind of responsibility yeah. to, to not be demeaning anybody's experience. Um, and so that was, that was interesting for me to combine research then with, with fiction and with these imagined characters. Uh, but... And it's interesting that you mentioned Jodie O'Neill because she has written a play. She's She was a late diagnosis of autism herself. Mm. She wrote a play called What I Don't Know About Autism that I saw in the Peacock Theatre um, in tw- early 20, the start of 2020, I think, or late 2019. And it was just so inspiring yeah. how she completely changed how the, like the, in the theatre, all the lights were on so that people wouldn't be kind of put off from coming in. You could come and go from the theatre space. The rules of theatre are kind of changed yeah. in order to have a more diverse audience. Yeah. And then, you know, the stories and the plots and the testimony that, that were in that play were just really moving and extraordinary and eye-opening. And so I was really inspired by Jodie's work. Yeah. And so it was just a joy for her to read the book then yeah. as well. Yeah, it's interesting because I, as I said, because I was enjoying the audiobook so much, I Googled. And then when I Googled her name, um, I saw some writing about the play and about her late diagnosis of autism. Um, and um, I wondered then, I was like, oh, it seems so perfect that she was reading the audiobook then. But then so brilliantly that I was like it could literally be a coincidence because she's so good it doesn't feel like you know yeah because she's a brilliant actor as well exactly so yeah so oh no it was just that was just the symmetry of that was so perfect for me because I was just so grateful to Jodie for and before I'd ever met her you know and now I've met her and I know she's lovely as well but um I was so grateful to her for the work that she was putting out in the world. Yeah. And what was it like to write someone so young as well? I feel like, I sometimes feel like I would find it hard to tap back into what it felt to be a teenager. It's funny because Penn is 16. And as a 16-year-old, I lived a completely different life. And I had written about that in Notes Mm. to Self. And part of wanting to write Penn was about wanting to write about, you know, a 16-year-old who was not having sex and who was not going to nightclubs and breaking Mm. all the rules and who was not, you know, who was kind of is a valued member of her family, whereas I was constantly, like, leaving my family, you know? Mm. And so there was a there was a, a fun there as well. I mean, I do, I, I do wonder, um, is, is, is Ben a projection of what a middle-aged person <laughs> thinks a 16-year-old is going through these days? But in many ways, she's also going through all the same things that I went through, mm. you know, those emotional risks that you take. Because Pen is going to tell her best friend Alice on this day that she has romantic feelings for her and that she wants to be a couple and Mm. not just friends I mean friends are also amazing but like that she wants more basically and for me Penn is just a hero for that yeah you know the bravery yeah I was I was thinking the same thing when I was reading it I was thinking I remember building yourself up for a moment like that now I will say it literally never went well for me (laughs) (laughs) 
but the yeah, way you would do yeah. actually Louise, we have that in common oh, <laughs> the, the courage you would have to summon for a moment like that you know and and feeling like the you know she has this sense of optimism and possibility that like I just don't know that you can have as an adult or I certainly don't feel like I can have anymore and it yeah. was kind of glorious to be in that space and what it is and for me so I had I feel like and my mum always describes it as this that when I was a teenager I had built a shell around myself right mm. this protective shell and she said it was just a defense mechanism against the world and what I love about Penn is that she doesn't have that shell yeah right and that's brave in and of itself it makes you vulnerable and it makes you fragile but it also makes you strong if that mm-hmm. makes sense mm-hmm. at the same time and so yeah I think Penn is Penn is a projection of how I would like to greet the world yeah in, in the kind of backdrop to a, a large section of this book is a climate protest mm. and it's something that Penn is obviously quite passionate about and in fact she spends a lot of time kind of weighing up her actions and considering her contributions you know positive and negative to the environment and to climate change and, and all the factors under that umbrella um is that something that you're particularly concerned about or well I mean I think it's the issue of our age yeah I mean it really is at the same time I'm, I'm going to fly to London in a couple of days so you know I I was having this conversation with a friend the other day and we were saying the next gen- pens generation will look at us and be like what were you doing yeah what were you doing you were just further breaking the world and I'm kind of like yeah someone needs to tell me to stop but I already know that I need to stop yeah it's so hard isn't it it's it's and I mean, it's not hard. It's, it's hard and it's not hard because we're living in a time where some people are choosing to ignore this entire just conversation. Some of us are engaging with it, but not really changing our actions. That would be me. <laughs> and then some people are obviously making great changes. Um, and there will come a time where we'll have to reckon for, with that and for that. But I can't seem to bring myself even to be a vegetarian. <laughs> Like, well, I, I, I'm, I'm a partial vegetarian or a part-time vegetarian, so, yeah. and I don't have kids. So those are my two get-out-of-jail-free Well, I'm cards. failing on both those fronts. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I, I, that's not fundamental change. Yeah. You know? So it is, it is I, think, I think we are unmaking the world. Mm. And, uh, and, and so, so Penn goes to a, a real climate change protest yeah. that happened and that I was at. Uh, and just the passion of the young people who were there, mm. who were talking on the stage and who were in the crowd and who were handing out leaflets and who were protesting and who were standing up for what they really believe in. And it reminded me of me going on marches for reproductive health mm-hmm. rights, you know, mm-hmm. and standing outside the door when Savita died. And mm. those moments where you kind of, that crux and that's that's their cause and it should be all of our causes, to be honest. Yeah. What's next for you, Emily? I don't, I mean, I know what's next. I'm grading exams, right? (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, I I still love my job um, at UCD and getting to be a teacher and an academic. And I'd love to write more. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm, I'm open to what comes next. I feel like this is just a, a chance of a second kind of life. I thought when I was in my in my teenage years and also in my 20s, I thought, oh, I really want to be a writer. And I assumed that meant fiction, right? Because mm. that's what I thought mm-hmm. writing was. And then I became an academic and that was writing mm-hmm. too. And I thought, okay, well, well, this is the kind of writing I'm going to do. And now I'm doing something completely different. So it's fascinating. I think fiction is really exciting. Yeah. And I'd love to learn more and, uh, and, and get to, to inhabit different characters. 
There's one more thing that I read in the the chat that you had with Catherine for the Irish Times that I thought was interesting. You mentioned that uh, you wrote this book um, and you had a relationship with Tramp Press Mm. and you mentioned specifically that they said that they liked your voice and that you found that to be very gratifying because it was something you had always kind of felt like you weren't literary enough. And I really related to that because Mm -hmm. it's something that I've always, I mean, I suppose it ties in with my earlier, uh, you know, chat about my my opinion pieces. I've always felt like that too. Like, you know, it's uh, what I do too conversational or too casual or something um did you did that bother you while you were writing because the book is I don't want to say I suppose it's the kind of book that I would describe as an easy read as a compliment because I love that that's the kind of thing that I like to read I don't particularly want to be really challenged and have like a dictionary beside me and like you know really having to to figure out timelines and stuff like that I want to be able to just flow with the book you know and it it is that kind of book so I wondered when you actually when it came down to the writing and when you were doing it did you have that voice in your head of oh it's not literary enough it's not this it's not that or did you feel like no this is my voice and I feel good about it um, so that I have always thought I always thought that you know you had to be John Banville yeah. to be allowed into the building that is literature <laughs> and I mean what nonsense yeah what a lie and that 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 culture was telling us all all yeah. these years but also that I was telling myself and so that moment when you know Lisa and Sarah said to me oh you know we really like your voice and I said I of course objected and I said oh that's just how it sounds in my head and they said no no you have a style, Emily, and they're very serious about this because they're incredibly serious um, about writing and editing. And I love that they stopped me. They didn't just let it go go or laugh it off. They said, no, that's what style is, Emily. And I was like, oh, like I was, you know, learning something for the very first time. And that has so stuck with me. Mm. And then people said, when they read Notes to Self, they said, exactly what you've said. Oh, it's really easy to read. It's a really hard subject, but really easy to read. And I mm. thought, oh, I can, I can do that. Yeah. Because those, those are the kind of books I like reading, yeah. right? I like reading <laughs> books that have grief and love and hard things in yeah. them, but that, you, you know, you don't want to put down and you yeah. can keep going Me with. too, yeah. And I don't want to, like you said, have a dictionary or I don't want to, you know, I'm tired a lot of the time. I don't want to have to be well rested in order to yeah. read a novel. I also like short novels. Yeah. You know, so that that is the, another thing about Ruth and Penn. I was like, okay, this is not going to be an Uber novel. Yeah, I won't lie. When it came through the door, I was like, oh, amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be so delicious to digest. But that's the thing. It sh- you shouldn't have aged while you're reading, no. you know. So I just, I, I love that you were, that you got what I was trying to do with the oh, novel yeah. and that it worked for you because I was trying to write for myself well I think that so many people are going to love this book if they haven't read it already Um, and I I know that lots of people will have already read it by the time they're listening to this and I'm so excited for you to write more fiction because it it was a really nice book to kind of settle into Um, and as I said if you haven't read it if you're not someone who who likes to pick up a physical copy the the audiobook is fantastic really beautifully read sometimes you get a book and you turn on the audiobook and you're like oh no I can't listen to this no and I love audiobooks actually so it was really important to me and Jodie just has an amazing voice yes it's flawless um, well, I can't wait. Hopefully, we'll chat again when you have your next book out. Oh, Louise, thank you so thank much. You. This was so much fun. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now, lots of you have asked me to talk about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard defamation trial here on the podcast, but I've struggled with it since it started, to be honest. The public nature of the trial and the way that teeny tiny bits of it are being packaged up and beamed into our homes via social media platforms makes it almost feel like it's TV, but of course it's not. It's real life. It's real trauma. And it's two very real people's lives. And, you know, it's all being rehashed for us via tiny little screens. But as we had more time this week, I thought it was a perfect opportunity to chat about the way the trial is being consumed. And I suppose what that says about us with Cassie Delaney. Cassie Delaney, thank you so much for joining me on this uh, kind of slightly unusual episode of Catch Up with Louise McSharry because obviously I'm on holidays. So we... I hope you're having a great time. I hope I'm having a... Cassie. I hope future Louise is sitting down with some sort of fruity cocktail, having a blast. Yes. All, you know, the thing is, once you have kids, your expectations for holidays, once you've had your first holiday, oh man, we had no idea what we were in for for our first holiday. But once you've done it once, you kind of know, you keep your expectations fairly low. So, you know, I think it'll be reasonably okay. And what more can I ask for? Hope at the very least that when this is going out into people's ears that you're like asleep or horizontal somewhere yeah. resting. And if I'm not, you know, that's okay too. But at least I'm not working. And that, I suppose, is something. Um, even if you love your work, everybody needs a break. Anyway, so because we can't do our normal chats this week um, in a timely manner, you and I are speaking on the 25th of May and we're going to talk about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, which people have been asking me to talk about on the podcast for weeks now. And I totally get it because it is a trial that has captivated people in such a dramatic way. I don't think we've ever seen 
this response. Um, and I think that it's worth talking about the way that the trial has captured people's attention, the way that people have responded to it, the content that's been made off the back of it and what it kind of says about the culture that we're living in now. Exactly. So it's such an interesting trial because it's one that I have been very, I suppose, reluctant to approach. Yeah. In the typical, he said, she said, what's going on? What are the nuances of the trial? Because none of us are legal experts. None of us are consuming every single hour of this trial. I mean, it's been going on for six weeks. So there's been an incredible amount of testimony heard on both sides. And also the nature of a defamation trial is so, so difficult because there isn't room for nuance. It is the uh, responsibility of the court to now find who is guilty and he was innocent, which means they're going to point the finger at one or the other and say, you're the liar, you're the victim or vice versa. So and that kind of makes it all the more toxic, doesn't it? So toxic, because as we know, and as we, if you exist in any way on the internet, if you have ever ventured onto Twitter, the internet isn't a place that allows nuance. It is very divided. We are post-pandemic, post kind of Black Lives Matter, living in such a divided society as is. And this has put uh, something as difficult and as complicated and as deserving of nuance as the Me Too movement in the spotlight and is dividing people. And it is so chronically toxic. So I'm glad that we're going to cover it in kind of a, a broader sense of how this has been covered, why it's been covered like this, and the problems that have have fallen out as a result of that. And um, we could obviously talk about this for hours. Yeah. <laughs> but we'll try and keep it. Yeah, we're not going to do that um, today. I think the first thing to say is um, I don't want anyone to feel bad listening to this. So if you're someone who kind of you know, got into this as a kind of almost like a TV show because in a, in a mm-hmm. way that's how this was presented to us. It was like entertainment and lots of people were consuming it initially as entertainment and are still consuming it as in, as entertainment. And like, I don't want you to beat yourself up about that, but I think that we need to ask ourselves why that's happening. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose where we start there is why, I- why are we able to watch this entire trial? Where did that decision come from so, and why? Yeah, that's a question that a lot of people have been asking. How can we can see this broadcast 24-7 on YouTube? How, can we con- how are we consuming so much media about it? And that is because it is a civil case and it's a civil state case. So federal courts obviously have a ban on recording and broadcast of trials, but that law doesn't apply to state courts like the one where Depp and Amber Heard's case is taking place. So basically they were able to kind of write a request to the judge to grant permission to record in court. That was granted. So we have Law and Crime Network, Sky News, everybody in there broadcasting from inside the courtroom. And then of course the media circus outside as well. So we're gaining an incredible amount of access. It's 24 hours streamed. And I think the average viewers on those on the Law and Crime stream is about 660,000 people at any one moment watching this as it unfolds, um, which is problematic in its own sense, because uh, you're not going to consume the whole thing. You're going to consume snippets of it and pull out. The issue, I guess, with it being broadcast so widely about that, like I said, is the snippets being able to take, being taken out and satirized, 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 um, which is what has happened. So people who even tried to avoid this trial, which I did, I've not tried to watch any of the live streams. Yeah. You're getting it on TikTok, yeah. on YouTube, 
wherever else and you're just constantly entering into that chamber your little own echo chamber and it's being served to you over and over and over again yeah the statistics on it are absolutely wild like the number of people who are engaging with content and with memes and hashtags and um you know team johnny depp because obviously as you said there's no gray area in this everything is black and white i think it's something like 12 million people have engaged with the hashtag team johnny depp um, well, there's yeah there's TikTok. a variety of hashtags and I think the top one in favor of Johnny Depp has been there's about six billion pieces of content or six billion views on that hashtag sorry I've actually yeah I, I've got this wrong I, I just couldn't find the, the statistic Has, hashtag justice for Johnny Depp has surpassed 10 billion views on TikTok 10 billion Yeah. So we can talk a little bit about why that is. Basically, the defamation case, as it happened, Johnny Depp went first. So he, in the first three weeks of this trial, was set out to prove that Amber Heard lied. So I think most people know the basis of the, the lawsuit. It is a defamation suit in which Johnny Depp is suing Amber Heard for the Washington Post op ed that was published on the 18th of December 2018, in which Amber Heard writes, Two years ago, I became a public figure representing domestic abuse, and I felt the full force of our culture's wrath for women who speak out. Now, even though she doesn't name Johnny Depp and doesn't say specifically, she doesn't call herself a victim of domestic abuse. She says a figurehead for domestic abuse. Johnny Depp's team are campaigning that that ruined his career, that that specific Washington um, Post op-ed was the reason he didn't get Pirates of the Caribbean 6, why he was pulled from the Fantastic Beasts franchise. Did we really need a sixth Pirates of the Caribbean 6? I didn't even know there was three, four, and five. Like, we really didn't. Just as an aside, we did not. We didn't. Um, So then Amber Heard is now counter-suing Johnny Depp for a hundred million, saying that he has kind of issued a campaign of abuse and trolling against her and turning the internet against her, which is a very interesting countersuit. Um, so the first three weeks of the trial, Johnny and his team were trying to prove that Amber Heard's claims were lies, defamation, and that he was not an abuser, that he, um, he his whole campaign is to clear his name. I'm doing air quotes. Um, so the reason we have so much content as justice for Johnny Depp is because we've only seen one side of the trial for the first three weeks when the majority of the content was created and it's had more time to go viral. And we have a lot of kind of armchair experts who are taking clips of Amber Heard on the stand and pointed out that she's manipulative, calculating, calling her a Karen a monster, right? Which They're is saying very, she's fake crying. Someone accused her of doing cocaine on the stand because she was using a tissue for too long. Like absolutely posing. wild stuff. Yeah, all that kind of stuff. But the problem is the reason that these people are doing this, and it, it seems to be mostly on TikTok, although obviously it's on other social media platforms as well, is that it's getting them views. That's it. So Anna Marion wrote for Vice and she interviewed the top anti-herd creators. And this is appalling. There are people who were game commenters or teenagers who had not really been creating content before started creating something to do with anti-herd sentiment and saw their followers and their view count go through the roof so started creating more in one case there was a an a pro dep youtuber who racked up millions of views said that before the trial he had 349 subscribers and then quickly in the first three weeks of the trial grew to 12 thousand he was 15 
He was homeschooled. He was making those videos during the day as he, you know, in between his maths homework and his geography homework. And he said, basically, what he does is he watches the, the live feed of the trial. If he sees anything out of the ordinary, I upload that with funny or sad music and emojis behind it. And his videos have racked upwards of 20 million views. Oh my God. So you have just people whose intentions are clout, just creating content with no consequence and it's being consumed by millions and millions of people. The same way on TikTok, those videos started going viral. They were memified and became trends. We saw even the likes of Lance Bass making content against Amber Heard. Everyone that kind of, the one that was doing circling was people acting out her testimony when she said that Johnny Depp hit her in the face. And it just, it, it had that, but you know, the virality that, that you'd see from the Lizzo dance. It's just like, so for me, I didn't engage with this from the get-go. I didn't understand why people were engaging with it. Because to me, at the end of the day, what you're talking about is a domestic abuse trial. That's what this comes down to. Yeah. You know, really the question is, who was Amber Heard abused by Johnny Depp? Like, that's the question. And I just, I find it hard to get to a place where I can understand people laughing at memes and like, you know, discussing like, did they or didn't they? And did she or didn't she? Who's the bad guy? Like, it's, it, it, I mean, first of all, those questions are irrelevant. It because there's matter. no bad guy or good guy. Yeah. Like, you're talking about what's very clear, a toxic relationship where there was bad behavior on both sides. There's no doubt about that, like, from everything that's come out. But, like, it's the fact that people are talking about it like it is a TV show or a movie. The humanity of this is completely gone. It's completely gone. And I think because the goal here is to find a winner and a loser... They are seeing it like that. It's it's one versus the other. And the idea that they can be, that, that there's no room for dissonance here. There's a lot of contradictory statements that are mutually true in this case. Amber Heard, I think we can attest for certain, has been physically assaulted by Johnny Depp on a number of occasions. Johnny Depp has abused alcohol and drugs and created a volatile environment. Amber Heard at times has reacted to that violence and also acted from a place of hurt, abuse, whatever you want to call it. But it's not for us to decide who the abuser is here or what's going on. The main issue that we've seen in how people are consuming this trial is the idea of Amber Heard doesn't deserve to be believed because she's the imperfect victim. So she doesn't meet the standards of what we uphold from a Me Too survivor or a domestic abuse victim. She's not that quiet, sub, you know, uh, you know, kind of subdued character. She has shown that she has stood up for herself. She has reacted in a in a way that most people find appalling, but that's for her to decide. And that's, you know, you can't say what you would do in that situation as well. I thought it was really interesting that um, I read a piece from a domestic abuse survivor and advocate called Leslie Morgan. And she writes, like most abusive relationships, this one is contradictory, confusing and disturbing. Although she was clearly afraid, emotional and at times violent, ashamed, confused and hysterical, I see no evidence that Amber Heard was the abuser. I hit my ex at times. I screamed horrible things at him. That didn't make me the perpetrator. I was reacting, overreacting, if you must, to being tortured and manipulated. I think um, 
the thing about this as well is that as people are talking about this trial and dissecting it and consuming it like it's entertainment or a TV show or a film, as I keep saying, domestic violence victims or survivors or whatever whatever people feel is the most appropriate term to describe themselves are hearing all of this discourse. Yeah. And I've read loads of experts saying that this trial and the way that it's being consumed and the way that it's being digested and treated is going to be hugely damaging Completely. to victims of domestic abuse all over the world. Completely, utterly. Like, I think that's my biggest takeaway from this trial is that this trial is continuing a cycle of trauma, not just for Amber Heard, but for all victims of domestic abuse. And it's given license to abusers to silence their victims. It's giving license to uh, this idea that women cannot be trusted. And it is setting back the advancements of the Me Too movements by years. And I think it's really interesting that Johnny Depp has decided that this is the best way to clear his name. Yes, me he's, too. He's not clearing his name here because we've seen the text messages between him and his friends that are deeply violent and misogynistic. We've seen his staff come out and say that he had been volatile on sets for years. We've seen financial planners say that he did not know how to manage his money. And that the reason he lost work was back on his own you know, it's it, it's his own doing. Even a rep from Disney, I think, came out and said, we didn't even know if we were going to cast him in Pirates of the Caribbean 6 because he'd kind of aged out of it. Yeah. So the, the, the interesting thing here, I think, is that he is not, he's not interested in clearing his name, no. as far as I'm concerned. This trial, I think, to Johnny Depp is about revenge and it's about power. And I don't think he's done himself any favors. No, this is the thing for me. And, and and I read one piece where someone was basically saying this is just another example of abuse. Mm. It's making this woman who has said, all I want to do is move on. She yeah. said it in court. And when she was finishing up her her statements or whatever, or whatever you call it, I'm not a legal expert. Her closings, yeah. That's kind of the point is that we're not legal experts. Um, you know, all she said, all she wants is to move on. She wants him to move on, but he will not let her move on. That's because it. Because he has pursued this and he has put her in a position where she has no choice but to relive all this publicly. And, you know, what is he getting out of it? Nothing. And like, it's, nothing. Super, it's super interesting. It's very strategic because this obviously isn't the first time that they've been in court together. So they were divorced in 2016, at which point they released a mutual statement saying that there was um the the, the 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 there was never any intent of physical or emotional harm and that there was never neither party made false accusations for financial gain so that was a mutual statement that they agreed in 2016 mm. Then we had the 2020 Depp versus the news group newspapers limited and Dan Wooten case that Johnny Depp lost. Yeah. So in they basically it was the same. It was very similar. Johnny Depp brought a defamation case against the Sun and the news group newspapers because they had called him a wife beater. In that court case, they proved that twelve out of the allegation, twelve out of fourteen allegations were substantial enough to be believed that the news group newspapers limited won that defamation case and. They didn't have to retract the statement, apologize or pay, or pay Johnny Depp any money. So for him to now bring this up again, claiming that it's a way to clear his name when he's already lost is strategic on his part. And again, I think a cycle of abuse. One of the key things from this, um, Jessica Winter writes this in The New Yorker, is about how this case has now frozen Amber Heard 
as this forever. An incredible quote from Jessica Winter here is saying that the consequences of this legal action against her will never leave her alone. This is who she is now, the victim of an unprecedented internet pylon, a bruised face on an iPhone, a woman who makes people laugh when she cries. And that is the truth. Um, it doesn't matter what's going to happen in this trial. Amber Heard has lost. She There's no recovering from 6 billion, 10 billion people believing that you're a liar. And Johnny Depp, who's always been a household name, will always be known as Jack Sparrow and nothing else, will walk away from this relatively unscathed. Which is, I mean, literally comes down to misogyny. Like the only thing that you can possibly explain this away via is the way that people and the culture treats women versus the way that people treat men. 100%. Because look at what we know for a fact, what has come out in this trial. Just the text messages, texting Paul Bettany, fellow actor, also on my shit list now. Let's drown her before we burn her. I will fuck her burnt corpse afterwards to make sure that she's dead. Like we know there's no question about whether or not he talked about her that way. Yeah. No, no, he definitely did. There are so many more talking about um, putting her body in the in the boot of a Honda Civic. You know, freak, like Ray, like, like numerous times so talking violent. about various ways of killing her talking about her in such a hateful way that is absolutely abusive like completely absolutely and that's abusive. the thing that's that's the concerning thing about this trial is there are no questions about whether Johnny Depp abused Amber Heard no. his defense is that she drove him to it which is just again another it's another kind of um, action of an abuser. It's a typical, sim- like it's a typical way that an abuser will behave is to yeah. say that it was, he was provoked. Yeah, and I'm sorry, it, I couldn't help it. I couldn't help it. But the thing is, even though we, what we have taken, what we know from this trial is that Johnny Depp is an abuser and we know the specifics. And yes, we know the specifics of the way that Amber Heard responded to it and nobody's taking away from that. But Johnny Depp... In this trial, has we have heard the proof, we've heard the text messages, we've heard the recordings. And yet every day outside that court, there are crowds of people there to adore him. And he turns up and I watched a scene of it and he gets out of his car and he does a big wave and a, hey, how are you fans? And he makes a joke to the security guards outside or the police or whoever it is who's standing outside. And he goes in with a smile on his face as if he's the winner. Yeah, but he is the winner because 10 billion people are supporting him or 10 billion views on those videos. Young boys, young men, everyone around the world and anyone who, anyone who's ever been against the Me Too movement is who's won here. And again, women walk away with the world being slightly more unsafe for us. But what's concerning is that there are lots of women in that 10 billion. Yeah, of and course. So yeah, women are complete, complete, completely misogynistic themselves. It's 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 so upsetting, and it's so upsetting to know that you know we can talk about this all day long, but I, you know, nothing. It makes you feel like nothing has changed. Nothing no, it has hasn't. Really changed. We're moving backwards. We're moving backwards, like. You only have to look at this trial, look at what they're doing to abortion rights in the States. Look at it like we are moving towards a dystopian future for women where our rights look at the how the pandemic disproportionately affected women. We are not 
you know, we're not making the advancements that we should be making. We're back to where we were 40, 50, 60 years ago. And yeah, you do. And you have misogynistic women in those 10 billion supporting Johnny Depp and supporting a system that looks like this. There has never been a greater need for feminism and collectiveness. And the problem that has really undermine the Me Too movement with this trial is that it has made us divisive, that women are turning against women. And the reason the Me Too movement was so impactful was because we finally pieced together stories and found the threads that connected them all and said, this has happened to all of us, despite the nuance and individual experience. We are all impacted by this and we are together and there is strength in numbers and we will not stand for it anymore. And now we have been divided again. So it will take years to get us to a point where we can find that collective moment that brings us together. I think the most interesting thing about this trial is if you go back and read Amber Heard's op-ed in 2018, when she writes, I knew certainly, I knew certain things early on without ever having to be told. I knew that men have the power physically, socially, and financially, and that a lot of institutions support that arrangement. I knew this long before I had the words to articulate it. I bet you learned it young too. Cassie, thank you so much. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.